A new twist in the Surrey hospital crisis. It's really hitting home. She's gone. She's actually gone. A grieving family demands answers after their loved one dies in care at Surrey Memorial. The province's housing naughty list. Our aim is to make it easier for municipalities to approve projects quickly. The BC cities that should be building a lot more homes than they are. And the fight over fallen trees. This is going to require a lot of work. That's a huge tree. A Vancouver family gets little help from the city to repair damage until Consumer Matters gets involved. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Another family is questioning the care their mother received at Surrey Memorial Hospital after she was moved five times in the three weeks before she died. Her family says staff also lost track of her pain medication, shaking their faith in the facility. Catherine Urquhart reports. Merrill's story was a much-loved, vibrant woman. Her daughter fondly recalls that cooking was not her mom's thing with some exceptions. She loved to make grilled cheese sandwiches for, for her grandchildren. In February, the 78-year-old Tawasson resident died after spending one week at Delta Hospital and then three weeks at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Daughter April is a former nurse. She acknowledges her mother was sick, but continues to believe a lack of care contributed to her death. It's not acceptable that she died the way she did, and it's not acceptable to me that it felt like there was no continuity of care. Nobody seemed to know what was going on. Merrill had a collapsed lung, pancreatitis with necrosis and a large bed sore. April says her mother was moved five times at Surrey Memorial, which she described as filthy. And when Merrill's condition worsened, she was in extreme pain. She suffered so much. The pain was so immense. We actually had to beg the doctor in the ICU, you have got to control her pain. You've got to do something for the pain. She can't go on like this. In response to a complaint from the family, Fraser Health responded, there is a lack of documenting on the medicine units about your mother's pain and the medicines that were given to help her manage the pain. We are very sorry about this lack of recording that could have led to our care staff not fully understanding or communicating her care needs. In response to Merrill being left with applesauce and crushed pills on her face, Fraser Health responded, this is not the standard of care that we want to achieve. Completely dissatisfied. Um, at the end of the day, it felt like it was a... a it's my word against their word. Merrill Story's family says they didn't trust the care at Surrey Memorial. Now they plan to take their concerns to a review board for an impartial investigation into what really happened during their mother's final days. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. BC's health minister held a series of face-to-face -face meetings this morning with doctors and leaders at Fraser Health. As Grace Key reports, Adrian Dix is trying to quell a growing revolt by physicians who question their ability to properly treat patients as conditions deteriorate at Surrey Memorial. 
Health Minister Adrian Dix met with Fraser Health CEO Dr. Victoria Lee and physicians in various fields regarding what some are describing as a crisis at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Now the Medical Staff Association saying the ER should be placed on diversion, meaning no new patients. The feeling is that we haven't really achieved our goals. There hasn't actually been acknowledgement of the level of the crisis. There haven't been real solutions presented. We went through the, the, the OBGYNs and others went through a series of issues. Access to operating room time, the supports they're getting from nurses and we are, we are hiring in the next couple of months. They made it clear they had issues around space constraints and other things and so I listened and we had a good engagement on that. Recent per capita numbers from March 2022 show Vancouver Coastal Health gets a little more than $3,000 per resident in ministry funding. Fraser Health almost $2,300. Dr. Callan points out Vancouver has four ERs in Surrey 1. Surrey Memorial is also a non-refusal site for Peace Arch, Delta and Langley. So we often get requests to transfer patients of those hospitals to ours because of services that they need that are not available at those local hospitals. So you, you should probably factor in the population much wider to really capture what Surrey Memorial Hospital is being asked to provide on a day-to-day basis. The South Asian community who have supported fundraising efforts is also speaking out. The Guru Nanak Emergency Services front entrance is named in honor of the founder of Sikhism and the birthing unit after his mother. The system is failed. You know, so I think somewhere we feel shame. Under that name, people is dying. The health minister said contract negotiations for hospitalists have taken too long, but Dr. Kellen says a number of hospitalists left to fill positions with primary care. You've got a limited pool of positions. You are poaching from one sector to house and service a different sector. Um, and so you're just shifting the problem around. Repeated requests for an interview with Fraser Health Board Chair Jim Sinclair were declined. The health minister is reiterating his confidence in the leadership at Fraser Health. Grace Key, Global News. Hundreds of B.C. nurses rallied in downtown Vancouver demanding the province address what they say is a worsening staffing crisis and untenable conditions in emergency rooms. The nurses marched from the art gallery to Plaza. One of their main concerns is nurse-to-patient ratios. In April, an agreement was reached between the nurses' union and government to implement minimum staffing levels. Now nurses are asking the province to follow through on that promise to avoid further impacts on patient care. We need them to recruit retain and return nurses who have left the profession. We have nurses internationally who are wanting to come and work here in Canada, who are here in BC but cannot get a job. The union says it's not uncommon for BC nurses to work 16 to 18 hour shifts without a break, and that's resulting in many leaving the profession. The BCNU says there are currently more than 5,000 nurse vacancies in the province. And in an effort to relieve some of the pressure on physicians, BC is expanding the scope of practice for pharmacists, allowing them to prescribe medications to treat 21 minor illnesses. That includes allergies, indigestion, pink eye, cold sores and acne. They'll also be able to prescribe contraception. That means people won't have to go to the doctor first to get a prescription. Although pharmacists will need additional training to offer the service, the province estimates 750,000 patients will be able to take advantage of the change. 
As pharmacists, we've often been asked by our patients for treatments for minor ailments. This exciting new change means that we have more treatment options and can provide greater care for patients when and where they need it. The ability to access birth control for free right from your pharmacist will make it easier for people to get contraceptives whenever they need it without having to wait weeks or in my case years to get a doctor's appointment. Later this month, the province is also launching a website where people will be able to locate pharmacists and offer prescriptions and book appointments. The B.C. government is revealing 10 municipalities across the province that will be expected to up their game when it comes to housing by creating more and doing it faster. Richard Zussman tells us how it works and what will happen if communities don't hit their targets. Hitting the target. We have the risk of losing young people to other provinces, and that's just as, as unacceptable to me. After months of anticipation, the B.C. government has released its list of municipalities where more housing is needed. On the Lower Mainland, the list includes Vancouver, Port Moody, Delta, the districts of North and West Vancouver, and Abbotsford. In seven months, we may find uh, communities that are on a naughty list, but right now what we have is 10 communities that uh, we know uh, need to put a little bit more focus on building housing, and uh, we're going to support them in that effort. The province will now work directly over the next two weeks with these municipalities to establish housing targets. Vancouver has long had housing problems with challenges around permitting and resistance to density. I want to be very clear, if something makes sense for the city over the next 30 years, we are going to do it. Also on the list, three communities on the windy South Island, including Saanich, Victoria and Oak Bay. Oak Bay's been resistant to density in the past, but Saanich's mayor says the only way this works is if every community contributes. I think it's great to see that uh, the three of us, uh, Oak Bay, Victoria and Saanich, are all on this list uh, with the province. I think it gives us that strategic opportunity to make sure we're moving forward in a coordinated fashion. I think the communities in the province that don't want increased density have fought against it, that don't want affordable housing. Um, th th you're not going to incentivize them, you're going to have to punish them. Kamloops also on the list. The province threatening action for those municipalities who don't comply, but there are no details on what that looks like. The province isn't going to come in with a with a nice, good, heavy stick. Um, I don't think this is going to be as successful as we would all want it to be. And these 10 are just a start, with the province hammering away at this point. They will be building on the list as the need for building homes grows BC-wide. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. Keith, why were these 10 municipalities singled out? What's the criteria for this? Yeah, that's always been the big question. Ever since this became law about last November, that question hadn't been answered until today. The assumption that population growth was the key driving criteria here is not correct. In fact, there's 10 different categories. Here's six of them, and it's sort of a weighted formula to determine which city makes the, the cut here. So such things as population growth, but only counts for 10% of the, of the formula. Current density levels, also 10%. Interesting that a greater weight is given for housing associated with workers and their families, as well as proximity to amenities such as hospitals, schools, and rec centers. Homelessness count also counts for 10%, and social housing waitlist is also in the mix as well. So 10 categories, that's seven of them there, or six of them there. Uh, the Housing Minister, Ravi Kalon, walking us through some of the criteria earlier today. 
There's uh, 10 uh, different metrics that we've uh, used part of our model. Uh, everything from, uh, I guess, some more standard pieces that looks at uh, the availability of land and whether it's being used at the best potential to affordability, uh, looking at uh, families that are middle income earners uh, that uh, and how much rent they're paying. So checking affordability and then also looking at infrastructure. What infrastructure is available to these communities, uh, both social infrastructure as well as hard infrastructure. And that model helped dictate which communities are part of the, the first 10. Uh, and again, my goal, my hope, uh, is that late this year, we'll have another 10 communities. Yeah, again, this is just the first list. As the minister says, in the fall, another list is going to be made, eight to 10 communities. So based on the criteria here, which was applied for the first go-round, six of the 10 cities today are, as Richard pointed out, is in Metro Vancouver. It's likely in the next uh, cut of things in the fall, uh, the lion's share will continue to be municipalities in, Van in Metro Vancouver because that's where the criteria, I think, can be applied most effectively. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll see who, uh, who does make that next list. Keith, thank you for that. A social media post by federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev has sparked controversy in Kelowna by comparing the city to a third world country. On Tuesday, Polyev tweeted a TikTok video of the homeless encampment along the city's rail trail saying, and I quote, these images are not from a faraway third world country. This is Kelowna after eight years of Trudeau and the NDP. Organizations that help the homeless say the post does a disservice to those working hard to address the problem. I don't like vulnerable people being used as props and that's what it was. All levels of government need to stop just pointing fingers and bashing each other and come to the table and start having true conversations about how we can address some of the real issues. This is an issue that cities across Canada uh, are experiencing. Uh, and, um, and it fails to show uh, the incredible work that is occurring behind the scenes. Global News reached out to Polyev's office for further comment on the post, but received only a generic automated response. Charges laid in a series of alleged sex offenses. The accused and his connection to an organization that helps vulnerable young women and girls and the whistleblower who first warned others about his alleged, alleged behavior, next on the News Hour. An almost unbelievable lapse in judgment on a Toronto transit bus later on the News Hour. Also tonight, the truth is out there. NASA's new plan to identify the unidentifiable and why they don't call them UFOs anymore. Right now, though, a contract worker once connected to the new Westminster recovery community has been charged with sexual assault. Global News first reported on this story earlier this year. It's been more than a decade since the alleged offenses happened. And as Rumina Dea reports, it's believed there may be more alleged victims to come. If it wasn't for the bravery of whistleblower Sarah Burfoot, charges may have never been laid against 50-year-old Adam Haber in a historic sexual assault case. I wanted to bring this forward so that he could be held accountable. Haber, who was employed as a contract employee at the Last Door Recovery Centre, has been charged with the sexual assault of three people dating back to 2012 and 2013. The identities of the victims protected under a publication ban. The charges, justice after so many years, says Burfoot. It's a very empowering process. Um, 
It's also very validating to finally be heard, to be taken seriously. Back in February, an alleged victim came forward to Global News. When I relapsed, he reached out to me and said that he was going to help me and like um, give me some groceries. He took me to a bar and like got me drunk and then, um, yeah, I just like went downhill kind of from there. Last Door says it terminated Haber's services and contacted police immediately after the allegations surfaced on social media this year. In a statement Wednesday, the Recovery Society said the charges do not concern any wrongdoing against our clients and in no way involved our services or facilities. The alleged offense is roughly a decade old, but New Westminster police didn't start investigating until January of this year. The victims and survivors got together on social media and then reported to the police early this year, which is the first time we had heard about this offense. Police say 11 alleged victims have come forward in this ongoing investigation. Burfoot says it's time to speak up. It can be scary, but there's a whole group of people here ready to support. Romina Dea, Global News. An emotional plea today from the family of a central interior woman whose remains were found 12 years after she went missing. The body of Madison Scott was found on a rural property near Vanderhoof on Sunday. Her family has issued a statement urging anyone with information to come forward. The family says, quote, the emotions we've experienced since Sunday cannot be summarized. However, we are astonished at the outpouring of support we have received. We truly believe it is the reason Maddie has been found. RCMP say foul play has not been ruled out, and this is an active investigation. On Vancouver Island today, members of the Cowichan tribes and others came together calling for justice and safer streets after the death of a teenage girl. Kylie Stanton reports. They arrive with red handprints painted across their mouths, knowing when it comes to the death of a child, there are no words. My heart's breaking to see so much hurt and harm in our community. And so instead, they walk, every step in solidarity with yet another family, desperate for justice. It affected everyone. Being here just makes it real for me, you know, like, I gave my daughter her last hug right over there. 15-year-old Carson Seaweed was found May 15th in a semi-conscious state. Her near-lifeless body located off this trail near the Trans-Canada Highway on the outskirts of Duncan. Seaweed was taken to hospital but did not survive. North Cowichan Duncan RCMP initially saying there was no criminality suspected in the case. I just want to reassure the public that we are doing everything. What quickly changed when confronted by the outraged community. All people matter when it comes to situations like this. The investigation was never closed whatsoever. And so that was a miscommunication that I apologize for. But no update in the case only adds to the feeling of unrest here. The fear it's just a matter of time before another name is added to these posters. We want safety in our communities back. I'm not going to wait for my daughters to become statistics. We are not statistics. As it stands, the numbers are not in their favour. 
This march not only a chance to honor Carson, but call on police and politicians to once and for all walk the walk. She deserved to live a long life and she deserves justice. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Duncan. And still to come, a dog owner shocked by what her pet picked up. He realized instantly that, that it was an intentional. What she did after she found food scraps stuffed with safety pins. But first, homeowners stumped when a tree falls and damages their property. What happened when they came to Consumer Matters for help? Traffic is steady both ways at the Arthur Lang Bridge this evening. All the congestion is on the Vancouver side, north and south on Granville Street after clearing a crash near 57th Avenue. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball Jackpot is $34 million plus a classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A Vancouver resident is sharing his frustration over how the city of Vancouver has handled the aftermath of a November windstorm that damaged his property. His nightmare started when a number of trees fell down. He says the city's been slow to remove them, so we reached out to Consumer Matters for help. And here's Andrew now with more. And thanks, Chris. For six and a half months, Ted Caduce says he's been waiting for the city of Vancouver to remove a number of downed trees impacting his property. He says after countless attempts to get the city's attention, he's been largely ignored. We told them right away in November, the day after the storm happened, that these trees have fallen. This needs to be taken care of. Fallen trees that caused thousands of dollars in damage to Ted Caduzzi's property, including his fence, ground and sprinkler system. He has insurance, but says he's been told by his insurer work can't begin until the city removes all the trees impacting his property. We're on sort of a holding pattern where I'm waiting for the city to do something and the, my insurance company can't do anything until the city takes action. This tree is still hanging there and it looks slender, but it is solid. The trees are technically on a patch of city-owned land, which has remained undeveloped for decades. Back in March, Ted says, city contractors came by and cut up one of the trees, but didn't finish the work. Despite numerous phone calls, emails, and even using the city app, Ted says he's getting nowhere. They give you a, a different answer. Oh, it was the, the wrong department has received this, or you need to email these people and email them. And they say, no, it's not us. You got to call those people. And they just get the runaround. The ground has been lifted up here. Watch your head. Frustrated, Ted reached out to Consumer Matters for help. After we contacted the city of Vancouver on his behalf, Ted says two city staff members showed up at his home. They both agreed that all of my requests were fair and reasonable. I don't relish bringing this story public, but I felt I had no other recourse. In a statement, the city of Vancouver told Consumer Matters the process to remove the trees was delayed mostly due to winter weather conditions and goes on to say anything that had fallen outside of the city easement was removed between February 21st and 23rd by BC Plant. The resident then submitted service requests on April 12th and May 16th. Staff attended on April 12th, however, were not able to access the easement as access was required via the resident's property. They made the day after the storm in November, so that's not true. They have my phone number, they have my email address, I pay taxes, they know I have all of my information, nobody contacted me. But now that he has the city's attention, Ted hopes what appears to be a simple matter is finally dealt with.
And Ted says the city has told him they will complete the work within one to two weeks time. And of course, we will be following up with him. And if you have a consumer issue, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Great work. Thanks, Anne. A Vancouver woman has only been a dog owner for three weeks, but she is already finding out how cruel some people can be to dogs. Allie Woodgate was walking her puppy in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood this week when the dog bit into a pizza crust with open safety pins sticking out of it. Janet Brown reports. On Tuesday morning, while walking her dog Bella near 3rd and Ontario, Allie Woodgate came across something that caught her attention. It glinted, the sun glinted off of it. And I was like, damn, that's a safety pin. And so I quickly put that one in my pocket and then opened her mouth because she's trying to swallow this other piece that she, she grabbed. I ripped that out of her throat. Let's go, girl. Come on. She's angry what could have happened if she didn't see the pins in time. You realized instantly that, that it was an intentional. It wasn't just a piece of bread. It was a piece of bread with a weapon in it. They're stuck in there, meant to be gulped. Allie, look. And there's there, even more. There's another one. Uh, one here, yeah. one here, one here. While we were here, we also came across several other pins on the ground near a laundry facility. You know, she's constantly sniffing, picking things up, just as puppies do. The SPCA says it has opened an investigation. If you're intentionally trying to harm an animal, it's a cruelty investigation, which we can recommend charges under the Criminal Code of Canada. And the maximum penalty under the Criminal Code is a $10,000 fine and five years in prison. I'm just so glad that I, I, I found it in time and saw what it was. Uh, look at her, like she just, she just wants to eat and eat everything. <laughs> Vancouver police say they're investigating and their advice for pet owners is to keep them on a leash and be mindful of what is on the ground. Janet Brown, Global News. Just ahead, the worst place for fireworks. <laughs> the reckless prank that terrified transit riders in Toronto. But first, the effort to memorialize our friend, former anchor Deb Hope, on one of the trails she loved to walk. Shocking video circulating on social media shows someone setting fireworks off on a bus in the Toronto suburb of Scarborough. It has renewed safety concerns about the transit system as more similar incidents have been reported over the last several days. Sean O'Shea reports. A TTC rider on a bus. Yesterday uh, in, in the afternoon between 3 and 4 uh, along Kingston Road in Scarborough. A male lights a firework as someone records video on a phone. Passengers watch or hear what's happening. Within hours, videos trending on social media. But the transit authority says police were alerted within minutes of the incident. It's irresponsible. Uh, it's reckless, it's criminal, uh, and Toronto police are now investigating that. And this isn't the only case of fireworks set off on buses and stations since Victoria Day. The TTC says there have been now seven fireworks incidents in the last nine days. In recent months, rioters have heard about shootings, stabbings and assaults on TTC property. Now this. 
The TTC is like the worst place to be right now. Like even the streets are more safe. Like I'm always worried. During the day when there are a lot of people, it's fine. But like uh, if there are not as many people or it's quite dark outside, I would never. But this incident happened in the afternoon. We had an individual that let a firework on, off a, on a vehicle, an incendiary device that could have catastrophic consequences to people. The transit union says drivers, employees and riders need support in times like these. And these kinds of incidents and actions happening are not going to help restore the confidence in the system. While some travelers say they believe the system is getting safer. It's not, it's definitely not a good thing, but um, I think that it's, it's getting better. Others say they'd be terrified to speak up if they saw something like this. I would not want to say anything because they could be dangerous. You know, our, our hope is that, uh, that this person is held fully accountable for this, uh, for this act. Sean O'Shea, Global News. Health Canada is taking extraordinary new measures to warn people of the dangers of smoking. New warning labels will be printed directly on the cigarettes. Canada is the first country in the world to take this approach. Experts hope the effort will help deter new smokers, encourage quitting and reduce tobacco-related deaths. Health Canada says labeling individual cigarettes will make it virtually impossible to avoid the health warnings. Coming up, NASA's new focus on UFOs, how it's taking a more scientific approach to figuring out what exactly is flying around out there. But first, growing concerns about drought and fires with a warm, dry May behind us and not much relief coming in June. A Coquitlam resident has launched a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for a modest yet heartfelt tribute to a woman we sure loved, former Global News anchor Deb Hope. The goal is to adopt Deb's favorite trail in Anmore, where she often walked her dog. The organizer says she wants to honor Deb's legacy as an iconic BC journalist and her tireless work for countless charities. Plaques will be mounted at either end of the trail, dedicating the trail to Deb. Wanted to do something to pay tribute to her legacy in the community. This is where she would mingle, talk to her um, neighbors and walk her dog, and just being a local community member. So I wanted to do something that people can remember her and also respect her and be proud of her. Deb passed away May 15th, nine years after being diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. The wording of the plaques will be determined by Deb's husband, Roger, and their two daughters. Be a very nice tribute mm -hmm. for her. Well, it's been a record-breaking hot, dry month of May in B.C., and that trend is expected to continue at least into next week. Yeah, as Aaron MacArthur reports, that's setting us up for significant drought conditions and a busy wildfire season. Well, fires rage across parts of Nova Scotia and in Alberta. BC is still dealing with a significant fire risk. A wildfire burning near Sayward on the island has destroyed 160 hectares and is still considered out of control. The um, basic perimeter of the fire is, is where we expected it to be and remains the same. Around the province, the dry conditions continue to be a concern. Metro Vancouver says conditions in several of its regional parks are dry enough to warrant a high fire danger rating. Charcoal, briquette, barbecues have been banned, and other cooking methods require constant supervision. 
The last 31 days have been one of the driest Mays on record. Uh, in terms of the last 10 years, I would say it would, it would probably finish number one on the, on the driest of May scale. At Vancouver International Airport, just 16.1 millimeters of precipitation has been measured this month. Last year, that number was 92 millimeters, and the average is 65. June doesn't appear to be bringing with it much relief at all. Temperatures expected to climb into the low 30s across much of the southern interior next week. So we are running quite a bit of a precipitation deficit on top of an already uh, dry spring. So May has deepened that deficit. As the precipitation deficit grows, water reservoirs may become stressed and the risk of wildfire will grow. The risk in many parts of the province is already elevated and going up every day there is no rain. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Wow, when was the last time we were hoping for January? And it's almost like right. what we're doing now, right? We, we, we want some rain in this mm. month. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't even remember the last time it rained. In fact, I do know because it's my job to know. But, um, <laughs> but in terms of really sort of seeing it at your house, it feels like so long ago. But I wanted to mention, you know, that 16.1 millimeters of rain that we had this May, 15.6 of it occurred on one day. Every other day, we've either had a trace or barely anything at all. And then when we look at the months previous, so looking at March, April, and May all together, this is the precipitation anomaly. It has been exceptionally dry all along the coast mountains, including Vancouver Island, and fairly dry in through the interior regions as well. And this is the uh, precipitation deficit, the carrying on of that precipitation deficit since sort of last April even. Uh, and I wanted to show you this. This, this is interesting. The temperature anomaly for May is very interesting. It was exceptionally hot across the northern prairies, northeastern BC, and that's exactly where all the major fires were, certainly through northern Alberta. So it really coincides with that heat. Now we're expecting heat once again. Over the weekend, we'll start to climb, but particularly early next week, a mini heat wave expected where areas away from the water could be at that 30 degree mark. And for those of you in the interior, we're talking about low to mid 30s once again. And yes, it's supposed to be January. And we still have no rain in the forecast as far as we can see. The best chance would be late next week. And even at that point, it's uncertain. Now, the North Coast, you're a different ballgame. You have uh, showers expected tomorrow. And I know there are a few areas on Vancouver Island that saw a few light showers today. But that's it. We are expecting dry conditions, mainly sunny skies Thursday and Friday. We may see a little bit of cloud cover over the weekend. But generally dry as well. At, but it is going to be dry, as I mentioned. And then again, next week is when we're going to see that big surge in heat. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from the Shushwap Lake area. This is a beautiful shot. Thanks so much to Ken Smith that was uh, looking out from Salmon Arm. Gorgeous. You. Thank you, Christy. Thanks, Christy. Well, if you don't know it, you otter. Today is a day to celebrate some of the cutest creatures on the planet. Hey, Happy World Otter Day! Squamish Nation held a special ceremony at the Vancouver Aquarium today to celebrate the otter. First Nations look with respect to the creatures because of their playful nature and ability to focus on getting a job done. When we look at them, we can see, you know, a kindred spirit, a spirit that uh, will tell us that uh, happiness isn't that far away, uh, peace isn't that far away. B.C. is home to two of the world's 13 species of otters, river otters and sea otters. The two are usually about the same length, but the sea otter can be up to three times heavier. Always a highlight visiting the aquarium and seeing them in there. Do you remember the time the otter got into 
Sun Yat-sen Garden. Yes. Oh, yeah. They can and be mischievous. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he treated it like a smorgasbord, did he not? He sure did. He sure did, did yeah. He yeah. <laughs> was heavier than three It was like all-you-could-eat sushi night for him. <laughs> That's what it was, exactly. Yeah. What do you got coming up in sports? Well, uh, Taylor Durham is uh, going to realize every golfer's dream next week and play in an actual PGA event, the Canadian Open. It is a dream, and it's, it's probably something that's not going to happen again. So back to just soaking it in, that's, that's the priority. He's a pure amateur, a very good amateur, who got into the Canadian Open by winning a qualifying tournament this month. Wishing, wishing him luck. Also tonight, like something from the X-Files, how NASA is trying to solve the mystery of UFOs. Squires here now and the Whitecaps hoping being back at home will do the trick. Well, it, it seems to with every MLS team. Uh, the Whitecaps are home tonight to Houston. Actually, Vancouver will be home for four straight games. And if you go by what usually happens in MLS play, Vancouver should win. Because for some odd reason, nobody in this league travels well. Everyone's road trip looks like a National Lampoon production. There are 29 teams in Major League Soccer, and right now only five have a winning record away from home. And Houston is one of those teams that can't seem to win on the road. Okay, tonight in Kamloops, it's two Western Hockey League teams at the Memorial Cup. Blazers and Thunderbirds in Seattle takes a 1-0 lead. Lucas Siona with the goal off the rebound to make it 1-0. But the home team ties for the rabid fans Kamloops. It's Ryan Hofer, and it's 1-1 in the first period. Vancouver Canucks have signed defenseman Jet Wu to a one-year contract. He's coming off his best season with Abbotsford. He's been in the Canucks organization since they drafted him in the second round in 2018. Sometimes guys took a little bit longer to develop than you'd like, but there is hope. His play last season is a sign he is getting closer to the NHL. French Open, Denis Shapovalov. Against Matteo Arnaldi of Italy. Shapovalov has never gone to the third round at this event, but he has now. He won it in four sets, but he'll get number one Carlos Alcaraz in the next round. Uh, Leila Fernandez did not win her match today. Well, you know the saying that uh, a lot of us say, usually sarcastically, how's it going? Well, I'm living the dream. And it's usually sarcastic. But in the case of North Vancouver's Taylor Durham, living the dream is really living the dream in the best way possible. He's an amateur golfer who is qualified for next week's Canadian Open. You know, I've, I've played some good golf in other years, but these last two weeks have been something special. Something special and then some for the 29-year-old Marine Drive Golf Club amateur. Taylor Durham is simply playing the best golf of his life, and the timing couldn't be more perfect. A few weeks ago, he beat a full field of players firing a round of 565 at Ledgeview to capture the lone berth for next week's RBC Canadian Open. And then this past weekend, he rolled in this birdie putt on the 18th hole to win the prestigious Marine Drive Open. Very excited. Like, it, this is what I've dreamt about my whole life. Um, it's, it's hard to process some days, but it, it's starting to feel real. Uh, I leave this week and, you know, people are already saying, good luck, we'll be rooting for you, and, and it's super exciting, yeah. 
you know, Taylor's a, a guy that works. He's a, he's a full-blown amateur, plays golf a couple of times a week, probably practices for two hours a week if he's lucky. And, you know, for, you know, amateurs at the club who are in a very, very similar, similar situation, it's great pride for them, you know. I know they're all very, very excited. Excited for good reason because Taylor's journey to make it to the RBC Canadian Open is one of perseverance and the ultimate grind. This is a golfer who had an average swing in high school and never played collegiate golf. He just kept at it, getting better and better every year, all while working at his full-time job in commercial real estate. He's won his club championship twice and is now set to play alongside the world's best at the Canadian Open. Talk about making a dream become reality. I mean, at the end of the day, I... I love golf. I'm a competitive person. I'm, I'm always going to play competitive golf, but professional golf isn't really in my cards. I, I love what I do at work. Um, I've got a lot of support from family, friends, and, and work. So, yeah, it's, it is a dream, and it's, it's probably something that's not going to happen again. So back to just soaking it in, that's, that's the priority. You know, as an amateur player, getting to play in the Canadian Open is success. You know, getting to tee it up. And, you know, Taylor's a really good player. Uh, I've never won a provincial championship. But, yeah, there's going to be some nerves. So I'm going to have to think of some triggers to, to calm me down before some shots. I just want to enjoy the, the experience. It's, it's not something a lot of people get to experience. So, yeah, I, I just can't wait. You should know all those great shots we saw are real. There's no CGI being used. <laughs> no deep When he face. chipped in, he chipped in. When he sunk the putt, he sunk the putt. Nailed it. Yeah, same with all my golf shots, too. <laughs> Really? <laughs> at oh. mini golf at the PE. Up next, the truth is out there, and NASA is determined to find it. Jordan Armstrong joins us now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Chris, a man convicted of several indecent acts in public is facing new charges. We'll have details at 11. Plus, a surprise development in the story of the bakery bandit, a man claiming to be the guy who broke into a Dunbar sweet shop Friday and stole six cupcakes, has contacted the business to apologize. He's also offering money. We'll tell you how much and what the owner thinks of the mea culpa tonight on Global News at 11. Chris. Thanks very much, Jordan. Well, the NASA panel looking into the investigation of UFOs says stronger data is needed to investigate the anomalies. It's the first time the group has spoken publicly since it was formed about a year ago as the U.S. looks to make more information about these events open to scientific scrutiny. Global's Kyle Benning explains. While television audiences might be used to David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson uncovering the world's anomalies, NASA is looking to set the tone for addressing unexplained phenomena. Last year, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration launched the panel looking into unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAPs, which it's using to replace the term of UFOs. And on Wednesday, the 16-member team held its first public meeting. The current data collection efforts regarding UAPs are unsystematic and fragmented across various agencies often using instruments uncalibrated for scientific data collection. The panel, which has experts ranging in fields from physics to astrobiology, says stronger organization and scientific tools are needed for better testing of these phenomena to determine whether it is an event that can be explained. Science has always been interested, but this is something unique because NASA uh, is going public with its 
uh, interest and willingness to take a hard, close look at UAP. The panel has experts from other U.S. government agencies like the Federal Aviation Administration and Department of Defense. The director of the DOD's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office says there have been 800 reports over 27 years. The majority of unidentified objects reported to Aero and in our holdings demonstrate mundane characteristics of readily explainable sources. Sean Kirkpatrick says 2 to 5% of those instances could be anomalies, with several members of the panel noting defense aircraft are not equipped with the correct sensors to determine whether something was an anomaly or something erroneous. It's something that former NASA astronaut and military pilot Scott Kelly saw firsthand when one of his co-pilots thought he saw a UAP. We turned around, we went to go look at it. It turns out it was Bart Simpson, a balloon. <laughs> the study, which is intended to make a roadmap on how UAP evidence should be viewed and gathered, is separate from a Pentagon investigation into UAPs. The group is set to release a report on its findings in July. Kyle Benning, Global News. I mean, I'm confused now. Is the UFO the same thing as a UAP? Yes, it is. Oh, okay. Yes, and it's just there's UAP if you sound it out. What it's was wrong with UFO? Was there a problem with UFO? Apparently to the science community, yes. Mm. <laughs> but just so everyone is aware, it's real. They're out there somewhere. I disagree, <laughs> but we will discuss that later. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's get the final word to Christy then. Sure. So again, we still have no rain in the forecast, mainly sunny skies Thursday, Friday. I am expecting a bit more cloud cover over the weekend, but don't forget we're expecting heat once again next week. Mm, cranks up again. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all.